Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. I'm going to read our passage for today. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 25. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it for patient, with patience. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. So we're in this um, series in Romans. Uh, we are coming to the end of a section. I said this a few months ago. I read it, and this made sense to me, that chapters 1 through 5 of Romans explains what God has accomplished for us in the gospel. And chapters 6 through 8, the section we're in, explains what God um, will accomplish in us through the gospel. And, um, and so we're talking about the part of Romans that... that it's about change and like what change God is working in us. Um, and in some ways, like the whole letter is about change and the whole book is about change. You know, that there's a way that things are supposed to be. This is not it. There's a way we're supposed to be. We aren't it. Um, the first part is him convincing us there's a problem that we can't fix. And the gospel is that in Christ, he's fixed that for us. But now he's going he's gonna to begin that process of changing us. And in chapter 7, he boils that down. Um, there's a great line from C.S. Lewis where he says, you don't know how bad you are until you've tried really hard to be good. And that's a lot of chapter 7, where Paul just gets down to the essence of what needs to change. And the flesh in him and his mind agreeing with God, but his flesh, he can't control it. And it's not, there's some sin in him. And he gets to a point of desperation where he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And this whole, this whole letter, like, I think, or th- this section at least drives, maybe the whole thing drives to that point of chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like he gets to this crisis and the dam breaks and it's, it's a peak for the letter of like there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Um, there's no condemnation from God because Jesus hung on a cross to take our condemnations and, and that was big enough that there's no condemnation that's going to come from God. There's no condemnation that can come from other people because, and that, that's a sermon from a few weeks ago, condemnation 
we usually experience condemnation from other people because we're comparing ourselves to people around us because we're seeking affirmation that we lost from God, but we've gained back from God because there's no condemnation. There's only affirmation from the Lord if we're in Christ Jesus and no condemnation from ourselves. And um, that's like the emotional peak of the letter, but the rest of, of chapter 8, um, it's almost like he's trying to convince us of that, that it's true. So he gets to that point, and then last week, um, I preached through the, the next section of chapter 8, where he really talks about the Holy Spirit, and he hasn't talked about the Holy Spirit at all before in Romans, but now he starts talking about the Holy Spirit, and because you still have to change. There's no condemnation, but there's still change that needs to happen. You can't do that by yourself, and so now you have the help of the Holy Spirit. I realized afterwards uh, a better setup for that. Has anybody seen the, the, the TV show Alone? Has anybody watched this? How many people have watched more than one season? I watched like one season. I thought, I think I got the gist of this. Um, they send people out into the wilderness. They get like five things, right? Ten things they can bring with them. And then they got to find like food and shelter and water. And um, they, after, I mean, some of them, like the, the season I watched, I think a guy cut himself with an axe or something like that the first night. And then he had to get medevaced out. But then after like a week or two, people are crying and they're lonely and they're desperate and whatever. And I thought, what Paul's saying is a lot of what we try and do spiritually, we do alone without the help of the Holy Spirit. And we don't need to do that. You know, some things have fundamentally changed about you once you believe in Jesus and who he is and you surrender to him and the Holy Spirit comes into you. And, and so last week was about this help that we have. But right at the end, he says this, if you live according to the flesh... For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And I don't know. Um, I came out of last week, and I preached it with some questions of like, what is this? This still, and some anxiety. Like, this still sounds hard, and I'm not exactly sure what he means. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. I don't want that. But if by the Spirit, which he seems to have said, you were in the Spirit because of what Christ has done. You put to death the deeds of the, of the body. You'll live. So by the Spirit, you have help, but it's still on you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And, um, and so Nate and I went to lunch right afterwards and, and talked for like two hours. And part of that conversation was, what does it mean to be in the Spirit and what does it mean to be in the flesh? Because the passage last week seems pretty clear that if You've received Christ. You are in the Spirit. I'm going to say this again in a minute. There's no doubt about it. But there's a lot of times where I do things and I think things and I say things that would be much more consistent with somebody who's in the flesh than in the Spirit. And so what do I make of that? And what do I make of the fact that by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh? And how exactly does the Spirit help us put to death the deeds of the flesh? And so that left me with like tension. And so when I came to this passage um, and trying to figure out where he's going with it next, to me, this is, um, Paul is managing our emotions, maybe as much as I've understood him to be doing in, in any other section of any other letter that I've read, that he seems to be in tune with where the, the thoughts and the, and the logic that he's going through takes us, and, and he wants to take us to another place. So this is, this is the three things I get out of this passage. The assurance of adoption, 
And it's like he's saying there's no going back. Like you might have questions about that and understanding what it is, but there's no going back. The assurance of adoption, the expectation of success, and then the promise of reward. So here's where he goes with the passage. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, like I said, from last week and that last passage that it stops with, this almost seems like a hard right turn to me. Uh, adoption is like a theme throughout the Bible. And I read a, um, a chapter of a book, a famous book by a guy named J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And he's got a chapter on adoption, which is, you know, like some of the, some of the best exposition of it anywhere. And he makes the statement that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than justification. So justification is the idea that we were at odds with God without Jesus and what he's done in the gospel, but once we've received the gospel, we are made right with God. God has no problems with us. We have no problems with God. We are, we're made right with him. And he says adoption, and that's a great good. You know, it's hard to imagine something greater, but he said adoption is a higher privilege. And he says it for this reason, that, that justification is like forensic. It's kind of a sterile, logical idea, conceived in terms of law, and God is the judge. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love, and it's got God as the father. It's like adoption is moving from the head with justification to the heart. Like it's the natural extension of justification. And I think in this passage, it's as if Paul read my mind in coming out of his last section with some questions and some tension and says, and he doesn't want that to be there. Um, and so I come out of it with put that put to death the deeds of the flesh thing is confusing and I don't know how I'm ever going to get there. And he's saying, like, there's no, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. It's like he sees it happening. And so there's no fear. There's no fear of failure. There's no fear of condemnation. There's no fear of the unknown. There's no fear of a power that's working against us or within us. Um, we shouldn't fear that we're not really in the spirit, but we're still in the flesh. Like, we don't have to fear any of that stuff. He says, all who are led by the spirit are sons of God. Um, and I spend a good bit of time actually going backwards into last week's passage and that in the flesh and in the spirit and what that means. And um, he said last week, he left no doubt about this in Romans 8 9. He said, you, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if you do, like you're in the spirit. And some commentators brought up like complementary passages that say similar things. And and this first one, once, once I read it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's pretty obvious. So John uh, chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus. It's right in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Nicodemus is trying to figure out what he's about. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water... And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he's saying really the same thing that Paul's saying. Like you're born once of the flesh, but then you're born again of the spirit. 
And once you're born again of the Spirit, it happens when you receive Christ, you are in the Spirit and you are no longer in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. Um, In Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And all three of those things are saying there's something spiritual and irreversible that happens in the moment that you accept who Christ is and what he's done for you. And that may be imperceivable to you in that moment. Or for some of you, it may have been like a lightning bolt hit you and knocked you over. But it's monumental and it has changed um, your life for eternity. And that's what he was saying like the last two weeks, probably the last two months, you know. But he's, it's like he understands how thick our skulls are and what it's going to take for us to get it. And so he doubles down on it. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And in that, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're not going back into some uncertainty. You're moving further into certainty and assurance. Um, Adoption is a picture that we've talked about a lot over the years because we have a number of families that have adopted, you know. And so we've got a number of parents that just decided this was what God called them to do, and they've taken a child that's out of a perilous situation and put them into a secure situation. Um, In ancient times in Rome in particular, uh, people often adopted because they didn't have an heir for their, for their fortune, and so they were going to pick somebody to be um, their heir. I don't know if you saw it. Did anybody see the story where the lady left her stuff to her seven cats? Did anybody see that? I'll give you one guess what state she lived in. Florida. Uh, I don't know. Uh, So there's some context. It could happen. Um, But they they would find somebody and adopt them and make them their heir. And so, the, and the, th- the things that happen when, you, when people get adopted happen. Their name was changed. Their debts were erased. Um, they became an heir of everything that their father had. They became a member of the family and got expectations, had the expectations as such. We've talked, again, we've talked so much about this. When, when a family here adopts, like it, a child is chosen for adoption. They are pursued in adoption. They are, there's a cost to an adoption. Um, and, and what Paul, like I said, Paul is taking this from the head to the heart because um, adoption is emotional. So I don't, did you get that video? And I put this video in the weekly a couple weeks ago, and there's like 7 million videos like this on the internet, you know. Um, but I have watched this video probably 25 times, and every time I watch it, it um I want you to read it. I'm going to be adopted. <laughs> he loves you so much. Okay. He'll always be your 
I watched that one 10 times uh, this week. I watched like 15 other adoption videos because I was looking for that one. And then after I found that one, I found some more anyway because it's why I put it in the weekly a few weeks ago. Who isn't better off in life for having seen that video? And it's like Paul is saying like, this is what's happened. And that's how you should feel about what's happened to you spiritually is you've been adopted and God the Father is like those parents that have come around you and there is an assurance and a safety in that adoption and so there's no reason to fall back into fear because this is how he feels about you. Uh, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so we have status in God's eyes. This passage says we're no longer slaves, but we are sons and daughters of the Father. We have intimacy with God. The language of Abba is the language of Daddy. It's crawling up into our Father's lap and telling Him everything that's in our hearts because we have been given the privilege of, of having that type of relationship with God the Father. We have an assurance. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. We have security in God. There's an inheritance, and everything he has is ours. Everything he has is ours, and we are a part of the family of God. There's an assurance in that adoption. There's no going back into fear. Whatever questions I might have about the previous passage and how the Holy Spirit works in my life and what's at stake, there's no going back because we're a part of the feeling of God or the family of God. Um, I don't know, you, I have a hard time keeping that, the feeling with that. Um, there may be uncertainty about how this is going to work out. I wonder if, um, I mean, over the years talking to families, particularly that have adopted, there's an idea of attachment disorder where it's, it's, it's hard. There's insecurity that comes out of the past that moves into the present. And I wonder if there's some spiritual parallel to that where we're just not sure that we belong but here, he's trying to like, make sure that we understand that we belong. There's work to do. You have household obligations because that's how a household works. Um, and, and you haven't been transformed completely. Maybe you know, you've just been changed a little bit. Um, but the help that he talked about last week with the Holy Spirit is not temporary help. It's not conditional help. It is forever help um, because we are in God's family and in his household and he's going to finish that job. So the assurance of adoption. This next little section, he gives what I, what I just termed the expectation that it's going to work, that there's going to be success. So he says, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So he talks about suffering a couple times. And, um, and that seems a little bit uh, wonky, a little bit like just choppy, the way that it moves. And so when I read about that, the suffering and trying to ask the question, what suffering is it talking about? A lot of people said persecution, like that if we identify with Christ, that we're going to experience some type of persecution. I think that might be part of it, but I don't think that's all of it. And it's definitely not, you could read that in a way of provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified. And if we don't suffer, we won't be glorified which is like a works-based thing, which would go against everything he said about the gospel to this point in the letter of the Romans. I think what he's saying 
is Christ suffered as a result of sin. Christ suffered so all of us could be redeemed from sin, and sin causes suffering, and so he took on that. He took on um, the suffering that comes from sin. And God, he takes away, we, like Jesus has removed the consequences of our sins, but he hasn't removed all the effects of our sin. And we still experience suffering as a result of our sin because we're not just going along with it, um, but because we're fighting against it. Uh, and I think as the process of sanctification happens, we experience suffering. Part of what God uses to show us our sin, you know, so that it can be dealt with, is he uses the pain that are, and the suffering that our sin causes. We suffer because of the sins of those around us. As God is working in the lives of the people around you, and particularly the people that are closest to you, and probably the people that are sitting right next to you, like you will experience suffering as a result of their sin because you're close to it, and because God's working, working that out in them. And God's using you in the process of changing the people around you. And it may be that God points out their sin to them by showing them how much that sin hurts you. And so there's suffering involved in all of it. And I think that is a part of what it means when in other places Paul says that we have to share in the sufferings of Christ. Um, and so we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ by being a part of what God is doing in the lives of the people around us. And the people around us are sharing in the sufferings of Christ by being a part of what God is doing to work out um, the sin that's in us. In us. It, and, and here he's saying, but there's a glory that's to come. And so while you're working through that suffering, like, keep one eye on the reality that's going to happen. The job is going to get finished. There's an expectation that this is, he is going to complete the work. He says it in another passage in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we do not lose heart, heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And so same concept. There's an affliction that we're going through right now, but it's preparing us for this weight of glory that's beyond all comparison that we can't even conceive. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay, or I think it was a sermon initially, called The Weight of Glory, which talks about this. And he's talking about really the, the desire within us for heaven, um, which is tied to glory, and the idea that there is a way that things are supposed to be, but we have a hard time even um, hoping for it because it seems too good to be true. Uh, but he's saying one day things are going to be that way. And so he, he describes it this way. He says, I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell that we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience and we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Like there's a reality that we know we're made for and it oozes out of us, but we're scared to truly hope that it could come true because we don't want to be disappointed. And Paul is saying, it's coming. And the comparison he makes is to the creation around us. So he says the creation waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he compares our longing to the longing of creation and says the longing of creation is going to be fulfilled and our longing likewise is going to be fulfilled. To be honest with you, I don't know that that's what I would have used because I don't like think often of creation as longing for its redemption. Like whenever I read that, it's kind of a foreign concept to me. And when I think about the reality we live in, I think creation is the part that's got it together and we're the part that doesn't, you know? And so, but maybe when it says that creation is longing for the redemption of the sons of God, that's the most environmentalist verse in the Bible um, in saying that we've screwed some things up and creation is hoping we can get our act together so that they can be redeemed. Um, we went to the, Johnny and I went to the, to the Wilsers place up in the mountains the other day um, just to do some fly fishing, which we've never done before. It was great. I can see why people like doing that. I caught a fish that is one day going to be a monster of a fish. Um, it's, it's about this long, but it's going to be this, it's, you could see it in its eyes. It's a fighter. It's huge. And, um, but man, you walk through those streams and it's like crystal clear, you know, and I jog by the noose all the time and I don't know what is in the noose. God only knows what is in the noose and he might not be sure, you know, um, but the noose is probably longing for the redemption of the noose, you know, um, I don't, like I said, this is a little bit hard for me to capture that creation is longing for it, but the Bible says that creation was subjected to futility. It's part of the curse that, that creation is dealing with the consequences of our sin, and creation is longing for its redemption uh, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In a handful of times in Scripture, creation is personified. So in Isaiah, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. Again in Isaiah, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Jesus said when he was coming in on Palm Sunday, and um, the religious leaders were telling him to rebuke his disciples. He said they could be silent, but the stones themselves would be cried out. Would cry out. Creation is longing for its redemption, and the Bible promises there will be a new heavens and a new earth. It will be redeemed. And in that context, what he's saying is that your job is going to get done. Um, you don't need to fret about that. Because God has promised it and it's going to happen. And he, he puts one more analogy in. So there's adoption, there's the assurance of adoption, the expectation of excess in the comparison to creation, and then the promise of reward. And his last picture is childbirth. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Which I've never thought about that. That's a long labor, you know. And, uh, there's, but in that, there's suffering and there's anticipation but it will, it will end, and there will be fulfillment. Um, and from what, I've, from what I've been told, childbirth is worth it. I've never heard a woman say, well, I don't know, 50-50. Uh, did I do that again to get this kid, you know? Um, what, I, what it seems like I've heard, and someone's going to tell me immediately this isn't true, that you kind of forget the pains of childbirth because the baby is so worth it. And I think that's, that's where he's going with this picture. 
is like, hey, don't worry about it. You're in the family. Like, God has got this. And there's an ex- like, it's going to be completed. Like, I know you're waiting, but it, that wait is going to end. And it will be worth it once the wait ends. And so he's taken us to this, like he said, he's managing our emotions. And in 8.23, I feel like he puts together the last couple sections and says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the Spirit, that was last week, we've got help, the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. This is hard. There's suffering involved in it as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. And there's, some, there's a question in that passage, what are we waiting for? Because we are sons. It said that previously. It says it again. But there's some aspect of our adoption that we're still waiting for. And the redemption of our bodies. Um, so he puts it together and says, this is you. You have the first fruits of the Spirit. It's natural for you to groan in inwardly as you wait eagerly for that adoption of sons and the redemptions of your bodies. And then says, in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. It's almost like he just points out the obvious and says, hey, this is hope. It's not yet fulfillment. It's hope. And if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, again, in this hope, we were saved, past tense. So whatever that we're waiting for adoption of sons, like doesn't mean that we haven't been saved. Past tense, we were saved. We are not in the flesh anymore. We are in the spirit. We were adopted. We're a part of the family. But there's part of that we haven't yet realized, and we are expecting that. Um, and so what, what he's done is try to take us from a place of falling back into fear and uncertainty and moving us to a place of confident, hopeful, expectant patience in the things that God is doing in our lives. And so, I mean, the question that I think the, the passage begs for you and for me is when it comes to the work that God's doing in our lives, is it, um, are we anxious about the things that God is doing? Are we constantly on edge? Are we constantly wondering if he's there and what he's going to do? Or are we in a place where there's a confident, hopeful, groaning uh, patience that the Lord is good, that the Lord is there, um, that we are a part of his family, that there's no doubt about the love that he has with it for us, that there's no doubt about the fact that he's present with us, and that he is the one um, that's, that's working in us um, to, to bring about change, whether we think it's fast enough or not, but like a confidence of what the Lord is doing. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. And um, I'd ask you that question, like, what do you think the Lord is working out in you right now? And what's your attitude towards it? I think there's a, there are a couple more options here, and one of them is like just a, um, a passivity towards what the Lord is doing. Um, and I think that can come about because, because there's been anxiety about it and uncertainty about it, and, um, and we fall back into fear and we fall back into condemnation, and it's, it's easier not to deal with it. 
and just to think God's going to finish it at some point, but I don't have to worry about it now. And that's not where he wants us. And he doesn't want us in a place where we are wondering, is it ever going to happen? And I think it's natural, and in this passage several times talk about the groaning um, that happens, that creation groans and we groan likewise, and it's about to say that the Spirit understands it and groans with us and intercedes for us and, and knows what to pray. Um, but what is crystal clear to me is that he wants us to have confidence in the love that he has for us, in the work that has been done for us uh, in Christ, in the help that's been given us in the Holy Spirit, in the security in our place in the household of God, in the love uh, that the Father has for us, that we can come to him in whatever those emotions are and say, Abba, Father, and just pour out our hearts before him. And my prayer is that he drives us to that place of eager, confident, hopeful patience that God is on his throne in our lives and in our world, that God knows what he's doing, that God's timing is perfect, and that God is going to finish the work that he's doing in us and the work that he's doing through us. Father, thanks for um, the pictures that you give. Thank you, Lord, um, most of all, that we have been adopted into your family, that this isn't just an, an idea for our heads. It's not just a logical exercise, but it's an exercise of our hearts that you have loved us, that you have chosen us, that you have pursued us, that you have paid for us, that you have secured our future, that everything that you have is ours, Lord. That anxiety is normal, that it's normal to, to um, groan, Lord, to wonder, but that you've called us into a place of security, Lord. And in the midst of so much uncertainty, we need that. So I pray that you would speak that into our hearts individually in the places um, where we are living right now, God. That you would give us a confident expectation and hope and assurance that you were at work and that you were going to finish the work that you have started. And we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.